This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. After Jesus and his disciples left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Uh, now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. All of us sick and demon-possessed, the whole lot of them. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place. And there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can have a seat. <clears throat> good morning, church. It's so good to be with all of you. Uh, welcome to Christ the King. If we haven't met, my name is Ashley. I'm the priest and pastor here, and I truly am so thankful to get to be with all of you this morning and uh, to be together and have uh, this maybe particular passage set in front of us. This is one of those mornings, and I hope you know what I mean when I say this, that... Um, <laughs> I like to think that sort of every morning I um, am aware of the goodness of Jesus and this is just for whatever reason one of those mornings I feel particularly that way. Um, so we're going to pray and just ask for the Lord to help us see him for who he is, you know. And Jesus, we are here for exactly that reason, Lord. And we do, again, invite you here, Holy Spirit, maybe now in a unique and special way. Will you help us, Lord, to see Jesus? Turn our eyes, Lord, and our affections and our attention, even, Lord, the less holy places in us, our distractions, our doubts, our cynicism. Will you turn, Lord, the whole of us to Jesus? And help us hear you, Lord, and see you as you are. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. This is the fourth week of the season of Epiphany. And those of you who have been here um, ought to know well by now what the season is all about. Uh, we've been spending the last few weeks thinking together about what it means for Jesus to be made manifest. He is the manifestation of something, of God. And so we've said in weeks past that in particular, while there are a number of different ways of thinking about the manifestation of Jesus or what it is that he's manifesting exactly, um, this is a season to think about the glory of God and that of all the things that Jesus was making manifest, that was at least part of it, if not the whole of it, that Jesus was helping us see, helping us understand God's glory 
And the way that Jesus did that, in large part, had everything to do with his capacity for love. He did a lot of different stuff. He taught, he healed, he forgave, he rebuked, he cast out demons. Jesus did a lot of things, but sort of all of it in the service of helping us see God's capacity for loving us for who we are, as we are, that he loves us and that he loves this world, and that God is really glorified in those acts of love, helping us see that it really is undefeatable, this love that he has for us and for all that he has made. So we revisit that in a number of different ways. Um, for those of you maybe who have, I just feel inclined, if you have gotten this tattoo, it, um, this is your moment. And I only say it because a number of Christians at some point get either Karis Grace tattooed on them or a Chesed, uh, if you're a Hebrew student. Um, and that's how you know a seminarian, or at least um, one who's hoping to become one, um, because they're going to have one of those words probably tattooed on their bodies somewhere. Um, and uh, it's a good choice. Uh, Chesed in Hebrew means steadfast love. Um, when God reveals his glory to Moses on, in Exodus 34, you remember, man, that's the prayer and the cry of epiphany. Moses says, let me behold your glory. What a prayer. Um, and God says, oh, well, my face you can't see, but my goodness will pass in front of you. And then he passes in front of Moses and he declares his name. And he says, I am the Lord, abounding in chesed, steadfast love and mercy. Um, it's a beautiful and powerful moment. And sort of the gift of epiphany is that we are sort of, to put ourselves in Moses' place, um, dare we be so bold to hope for something similar, that the goodness of God would pass in front of us, that we might behold God's glory in some way, you know, see the goodness of Jesus just for a minute as it goes. Yes, it. Steadfast love. I was struck by um, that in particular, that thought in reading this passage in Mark's gospel, and we've made our way just through these opening, this opening chapter of Mark, just one story right after the other. And so if you'll remember, it begins, we began with Jesus calling his first disciples and then casting out a demoniac in the synagogue. And then now after the synagogue, he's gone um, probably for a break, bless his heart, as my mom would say, um, to Simon and Andrew's house. And as soon as he gets there, lo and behold, Simon's mother-in-law has a fever, and so there's more work to be done. Jesus got to hear them heal the mother-in-law, you know, so he does. He lifts her up, he heals her, and then he spends the whole rest of the day healing the sick, casting out demons. Um, the whole city gathered at the door, and so I, um, in thinking about our time together, just put myself there, you know, he really did just spend the whole day holding sick kids and touching the untouchable and probably having encounter after encounter with really unsavory people. You know, I don't, haven't met a lot of demon-possessed people, but at least to my knowledge, <laughs> I suspect they're not really concerned with you know, social correctness in a moment like that. And he just, hours, he was there with them, healing them. And so it raises questions, like, as to why. Why would he do it? And maybe specifically through the lens of epiphany, we're meant to ask, in what way is God glorified in this? And you might be tempted to say, well, if, because it's this incredible supernatural outpouring of power, it's the power that glorifies God. 
and I, maybe. But I think it's interesting that particularly Mark makes it a point to tell you that even though the demons knew who Jesus was, Jesus commands, commands the demons not to speak because they knew him. In other words, I don't think like showing off was Jesus' primary motivation. And I don't even mean showing off in a godly way, you know, like showing off so that God could be glorified, doing really impressive things to God be the glory, you know. I don't even, like not in that way. He wasn't even doing it like that. Um, what if Jesus just spent all of those hours healing person after person because he wants us to be well? Because he loves us. What if he just genuinely enjoyed seeing sick people walk away feeling better? In other words, maybe there's an invitation for me and you to just hear actually that God is glorified in you being well, in you being whole. And I don't mean that in the like, but in a Christian kind of way, meaning you're super obedient and you believe all the right things and you do all the right things. And in that, of course, God is most glorified. Because as I look at the story, actually, Jesus didn't require any kind of commitment from these people at all or any kind of behavior change. He didn't even really evangelize. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't like, here's a little healing to go with your evangelism. Here's a little healing on condition that you change your behavior or start acting in the right way or, of course, believing all the right things. There are occasions, of course, in which Jesus did evangelize and he did call people to repentance and he did correct behavior. This just wasn't one of those days. And this was on the front end. So if ever he was going to like make sure people got the message, which is that God wants to heal you if and when you get it right, if that had been the message that Jesus wanted to make sure that people got, this would have been the time to make sure that they heard it. And instead, sort of scandalously and provocatively, he just heals them without condition, without explanation. And maybe he did it just because it delights him to see his whole and well. The reason that this is, and maybe not, a new or um, provocative or maybe even to you on the surface of it terribly important idea it was for me and continues to be uh, for me um, in my life with God and in my life in general. I think just believing that I'm, I'm loved and lovable no matter what I do, um, hard for threes, hard for humans. And so I, I remember in my early 20s being sort of rocked with the notion that God wants me, dare I say, to be happy now be careful when you say things like that in church. God wants you to be happy. Risky business. Because, of course, we have to clarify what happy means. God wants you to be happy. This is true. But in a very specific and particular Christian kind of way. At least that was the message that sort of implicitly I received. Um... So when I say to you, God really does want you to be happy, let me get sort of the necessary disclaimers and caveats out of the way. Jesus is not your guru. He does not just want you to live your truth. His truth is better than yours. 
That's why you should live his truth, not your own. This is true. Jesus is not our cosmic cheerleader. You don't need one of those. Cheerleader in the sky with a go you. You know, that's not who he is. He's not Santa Claus. He's not a genie in a bottle. Jesus did not spend hours in Capernaum sitting in Peter's house granting wishes all day long. It's not who he is. It's not what he does. All right, we've said it. Can you believe that God wants you to be happy? Can you believe that your longings matter to him? That you are happy in your body? That you feel good? That like actually when you sit and move and walk around, that just like in your body that you would enjoy the body he's given you and that it would feel good? Do you know that God cares about that? And of course he cares, he's God, I guess he cares about everything, but know that like actually, (laughs) that it matters to him that he would be glorified in you enjoying your body. That he would be glorified in your happiness. Honestly, no matter the source. Here's how I know that's true. I have two sons. They love fart jokes. They're not funny jokes. Objectively, they are never funny. It's always funny, somebody just said it's always funny. (laughs) Touche. These fart jokes are not particularly funny. And it doesn't matter how dumb they sound or how off-color it is. The two of them laughing will forever be my highest joy. And as their mom, I can go, I really long for a day when the comedic sophistication increases just a touch and we're able to derive this much joy from other things. But if today it's farts, let it be. It's farts. Look at how happy they are. The sound of their laughter. Whatever your fart equivalent is, your... Do you know what I'm saying? (laughs) God. (laughs) You know? This is how I feel sometimes about, like, stand-up comedy. I know it's not particularly good for me. All of it. But Dave Chappelle makes me hurt sometimes (laughs) with laughter. And I have just decided that both I and Jesus know how funny he is. And, you know, you just chew up the meat and spit out the bones. I've learned to enjoy my life with him. I've learned to trust that he genuinely delights in seeing me happy. And it's moments like these in Mark's gospel that I'm reminded that just like, man, you just really did want to sit and watch them walk away well. You're so good that way. I don't know why we can't all be made well in our bodies right now. I don't know, y'all. Not everybody in Capernaum got healed. Not every mother-in-law got raised up. 
Lots of people got left in their tombs. Lots of people got left on their sick beds that turned into deathbeds. That happened when Jesus lived and walked in those villages, and it happens now. But can you today receive the hope of a promise that Jesus wants you to be brought to him so that you can both physically and spiritually be made well? And that he would delight in your healing, glorified in it even. I remember in my 20s, I came across uh, St. Augustine, Baptist. We didn't read him much. This is a quote from St. Augustine. He said, every man and woman, whatsoever his condition, desires to be happy. There is no man who does not desire this, and each one desires it with such earnestness that he prefers it to all other things. Whoever, in fact, desires other things, desires them for this end alone. Meaning, you may desire other stuff, but what you really want is to be happy. And can we just say that? And that that's good? Now, how we get there? Mm, of course, that's the question. But it was this quote, the Confessions, Augustine's book, um, that of all places led me to John Piper. John Piper coined the phrase Christian hedonism. He's a big Augustine fan. And he's sort of known for popularized a phrase that, I would love it if some of you could say this with me, God is most glorified when bless it. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Those words changed my life in my 20s. And I hope that one day in glory, Jesus gives me the honor of getting to tell John exactly that. It was such a gift to me to hear that what God wanted really, truly, was for me to have my desires fulfilled, that my desires weren't all bad, I had been so preoccupied most of my faith with trying to get it right, think right, do it right, be right, that honestly desire had just never entered the equation. And so I just like, I read all of his books. Here is where I have experienced the limits of Christian hedonism. Is that when we say, God is most glorified when I'm most satisfied in him, what I ended up doing, because I didn't know how to do otherwise, is I just decided, okay, well, I need to just make sure that I'm enjoying God all the time, which meant enjoying and finding satisfaction in a very specific and particular set of activities. <laughs> so I need to not just read my Bible, but enjoy reading my Bible. I need to not just evangelism, but enjoy evangelism, right? I need to not just go to church, but really enjoy church in a Christian hedonist kind of way. You know, not just pray, but enjoy praying. And that is true. But what happens is when you know that up here, but you don't know how to do it, you just try to will yourself to do it. I'll read my Bible and I will make myself like it. I will evangelism and I will make myself like it. I will submit to my husband and I will make myself <laughs> like it. We tried. <laughs> we did. 
did. Tried so hard. I can't make myself. John knows this, of course. So the question becomes, what then? You know, when I can't make myself enjoy those things, what do we do? Because I suspect that the desiring is good. There's something there. But what if my desire is for stand-up? or whatever else, and I can't make it be for Jesus. What happened is that it reinforced a feeling of God is really only satisfied in me when I'm being obedient. Um, God is really only glorified when I'm being obedient. God is really only glorified when I'm thinking rightly and doing rightly. And so in the way of the church, the true blessing of the church, in the same way that John's words had become such a lifeline and changed my life. A later stage, I met Henry Nouwen, Catholic priest and writer. And Nouwen is the one who taught me to believe in my belovedness. Um, I will never forget when I saw the baptism of Jesus through the eyes of Henry Nouwen. Because what Henry Nouwen will say about Jesus' baptism is that you are in the scandal of scandals meant to put yourself in the place of Jesus so that when Jesus comes up out of the waters of his baptism and he hears the voice of God the Father say over him, this is my son, this is my child, in him, in you I am well pleased, the beloved. That every day of my baptized life that God the Father believes that and feels that for me, this is my child, the beloved. In her I am well pleased. Before I have done a darn thing, I am beloved. I had to be taught to believe this because even though it sounded true, I didn't really feel it to be true. Nowen says this. Every time you listen with great attentiveness to the voice that calls you the beloved, you will discover within yourself a desire to hear that voice longer and more deeply. It is like discovering a well in the desert. Once you've touched wet ground, you want to dig deeper. He's writing this as a way of saying, I don't get to therefore just say, I am the beloved, I'll go out now and live as I please. I am the beloved, I'll go out now with God's approval over everything I do on my own as I want to do it. Actually, he's saying belovedness works in the actual opposite direction. That when you hear yourself and know yourself to be beloved, there's something in you that craves to hear it more, that's curious. Really? You love me. Why? Who are you? What is love? This is Romans 6. This is what Paul is saying in that whole beautiful, brilliant letter that I'll never get over as long as I live. You remember he goes on this big you know, kind of tirade about grace and then he gets to Romans 6 and he says, so should we sin more so that grace may abound? What does he say? By no means. By no means. Absolutely not. Because why? Because we have been baptized, which means we've been buried with Christ into his death so that we might be raised with Christ and we too may live new life. 
I've been baptized with him into his death so that I can be raised into new life. Jesus, I came so that they might have life and have it to the full. I don't want to sin more. I want to know what new life is. I want to know what abundant life means. How do you get it and where does it come from? What Nowen was saying is when you touch wet ground, you want to dig deeper. And so the question is, how do we dig deeper? And so, along further in my journey, this is how I came to spiritual practices. They became, for me, not just about discipline, y'all, but about desire. We call them spiritual disciplines, and right we should. But discipline has everything to do with our desires, And it's important that we're talking about this now as we make our way into Lent. Because Lent is not about fasting. Hear me. Lent is about feasting that happens in Easter. You fast during Lent so that you know how to feast when you get to Easter. Do you understand? I submit my appetites so that the Spirit can cultivate them, train them, strengthen them, right them so that I know what feasting looks like and is when I get into Easter. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It wasn't just for the cross. It's not for the suffering. It's not about my willpower or tests of endurance or seeing how strong I am. It's not about any of that. It's about being happy. Can you believe that? That God made good things? And because they're good, that's why we tend to abuse them. So we put down wine during Lent, not because it's bad, but because it's good. We put down meat during Lent, not because it's bad, because it's good. And I want to make sure that it can stay good. So I submit my appetites and the way that I engage with those things to the Holy Spirit so I can be trained. I'm saying all this because you have an invitation over these next few weeks to think thoughtfully about Lent and how you're going to engage. And there are two things you need to know. This Jesus who invites you into the wilderness with him, he is for you. He loves you. He cares about your happiness. You being made well and made whole, that's why he's inviting you into the wilderness. And the way to go through it is to engage with on-purpose living, to try to live on purpose, to live well. And we do that through spiritual practices and disciplines. You don't have to guess. You don't have to just white-knuckle your way there. The whole point of having these practices is so that you have something to do that will put you in the wet ground, a tool to help you dig deeper. It's not just your willpower, not just your want to. And that matters for us. I want to commend a book to you in closing. It's called Sacred Rhythms. And it was written by a woman called, uh, called her name, is uh, Ruth Haley Barton. She's become a, a great treasure and gift to me in how I think about spiritual disciplines. Uh, I want to l- read this quote to you quickly. The journey begins as we learn to pay attention to our desire in God's presence. If we skip this part of the process, our work with the disciplines will be nothing more than another program entered into on the basis of prodding or superficial motivators. Stay within this chapter for as long as it takes for you to land on something solid within yourself, to discover what it is that you really want. What shapes our actions is what shapes our desire. Desire makes us act, and when we act what we do, 
will either lead to a greater integration or disintegration within our personalities, minds, and bodies, and to the strengthening or deterioration of our relationship to God and the world around us. The habits and disciplines we use to shape our desire form the basis for our spirituality. In other words, she discovered spiritual disciplines because she was racked, rocked by the idea that God wanted her to be happy. And I would invite you to come at them the same way. I'm going to leave you with this image, and then we'll close. Um, I was sitting and reading, working the other day. It was so beautiful. Man, we've had a beautiful couple of days. And I just felt an invitation to go outside, um, just, just to go outside and run. And so I did, which is not normal for me. And I went outside and ran, and I listened, um, listening to a prayer app. And it was the story of Simeon in the temple. And I was praying and thinking about desire, praying and thinking about our time together. And this beautiful story in Luke 2, I think, is such a perfect example. It's a perfect picture of how desire works. Simeon was a devout man, according to the Bible. His great longing was for the consolation of Israel. Meaning could mean a lot of things. The consolation of Israel could mean the defeat of Israel's enemies, the establishment of a new kingdom, a new empire. It could mean a lot of things. That's what he wanted, whatever that means, the consolation of Israel. He lived his whole life sort of praying, hoping for that thing. And one day he was walking around and the Holy Spirit tells him, prompts him to go to the temple. And he goes into the temple, not knowing why or what he would find. But of course, Mary and Joseph have come and they've brought the baby Jesus, to the temple to be circumcised. And in the story, the Holy Spirit leads and guides Simeon through the temple. And I've thought about this story so many times. I want to be able to be led by the Spirit in such a way. Can you believe that the Spirit would be leading and guiding you towards what you long for? Because Simeon gets into the temple And I don't know how he knew, but somehow he knew that that infant was the fulfillment of his longing. But he didn't look like that. Do you understand what I'm saying? It was an infant. It was Jesus. But Simeon had no way of knowing what this Jesus would do, how this infant was going to be the fulfillment of his longing. There's no way that he could know that. But somehow he knew that his longings would be fulfilled in this baby. And so in the story, he takes Jesus in his arms and he blesses the Lord. I think it's similar for me and you. My longings will be shaped by my pursuit of Jesus. That is true. They will shift and change over time. They will. And I will find my desires, my ultimate longings most fulfilled in him. I know that to be true. He also cares that I have a really good time that my life is full of joy and peace. And the same is true for you. So I would invite you today just to prayerfully reflect on if you had been brought by a friend to that house in Capernaum and put before Jesus, and he looked at you and said, what do you want? What would you say? Just pray into it. Whatever it is, just tell him. 
what you'd want. And then invite the Holy Spirit into the want and let him lead you. Holy Spirit, that is exactly our prayer. Lead us, Lord. Take a moment to be still. What do you want? <laughs>